0: Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia.
1: On episode 51, I interview Rosanna Iacono, Managing Partner at The Growth Activist we discussed how she went from wanting to be a diplomat in the foreign service to instead working in fashion brands across Europe and North America. Why the internal culture working for Nike was so different to Levi's, moving from a growth business to a declining business. How she got interested in private equity after returning to Australia and executed multiple growth strategies and successful exits with a brand-led approach rather than a traditional private equity model and why values alignment matters so much for who you work with. Turning a passion for ESG into her own business, a strategy consultancy. Why COVID was actually a growth accelerator for her business, allowing them to grow 43% last financial year, increasing annual revenue to nearly $1 million a year, becoming one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. If you're interested in a strategy and communication consulting business that activates courageous organizations and turns provocative thinking into action for lasting positive impact and value, check out growthactivist.com. That's G-R-O-W-T-H-A-C-T-I-V-I-S-T-S dot com. So I'm here with Rosanna Iacono, the Managing Partner of The Growth Activist. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you
0: so much for having me, Derek.
1: That's all right. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started The Growth Activist? What did you study? What type of organisations or roles were you doing?
0: Yeah, sure. I, um, I actually studied uh, political science at Melbourne University. I had this dream that I was going to go off and uh, join the diplomatic service and travel the world. And in the end, decided maybe that wasn't quite right for me and did a postgrad in marketing and merchandising, uh, which was at the College of Textiles, which is now part of RMIT, and thought, well, maybe I, I want to do something more in that sort of industry. And I headed overseas. Like so many Australians do, but I didn't go to London and ended up in, you know, to end up in Earl's Court like so many Aussies. I went to Italy because I spoke the language and I had this dream that I was going to work for Armani and instead I landed a job with Nike and uh, in their Italian, their Italian head office. And from there that turned into this amazing 10 year career with Nike where it took me from the Italian head office to European headquarters in Amsterdam a number of assignments that took me across to global headquarters in Portland Oregon back to Amsterdam again uh, and that was really very foundational in terms of also what I do today it was it was a really really formative part of my Uh, my professional identity and what I do. So yeah, I started as a field merchant, but eventually towards the end was a product manager and a brand manager. And eventually I was running business units. So that was, yeah, that was an incredible experience with an incredibly iconic, high performance business. And I think it also, um, you know, I, I have a very brand led approach, even with overall business strategy and general business strategy so I think that was highly influential and I I was just really lucky I think to start my career in an organization where the standards are so incredibly high so yeah from from Nike I went on to Levi's I was headhunted and and went across to become the brand director for uh, Europe, Middle East and Africa and then the global brand director for their premium segment. So that was an, an incredibly interesting experience, very different to Nike, not as progressive a business. Uh, they were actually in decline when I joined them. So I really needed to learn a new skill set and develop a new skill set. Nike was, okay, here we go, another another season of double-digit growth. And Levi's was not like that. You know, it was very much about motivating people, and restructuring and and keeping a sense of momentum in an environment that was really really tough so i think from a leadership standpoint it was it was a really uh formative challenge for me as well and then eventually after after about 16 years away i came home to australia and uh for family reasons and uh and it's always a really tough challenge when you've gone from those really big roles and trying to figure out what to do next. And, and I actually ended up in private equity, uh, which was really interesting. Uh, I thought it would be a bit of a challenge going through that whole process of helping to shape a business for the sale process. And uh, the first one that I went into was Sheridan. And so I had a very, very quick assignment there, which was really about activating all the growth levers, and then really helping build an information memorandum and going through the sale process with potential buyers to to deliver the exit of the business. And in doing that, I also had another big sort of private uh, PE uh, exit experience with Jolique, uh, where I went in as the the global chief brand officer and also collaborated with uh, a number of my peers and and the board to deliver that exit as well. And I think, you know, what I what I developed in that in those private equity experiences was Uh, growth strategy um, and a growth strategy that I still use today with clients. I think you are in a bit of a pressure cooker environment where you do have a sort of three to five year mandate to to exit. And so it's very, very rapid, but it needs to be extremely disciplined as well. And I think I've kind of formed a methodology around how do you activate growth across geographies, across category expansion, across customer acquisition uh, and across channels. And, And that's very much a framework that I still use today with clients. So, yeah, uh, some amazing experiences and, and probably the last 10 years of my career before starting The Growth Activists were in C-suite roles. So um, I, I was very fortunate to have some, some fantastic roles in, in some really incredible
1: brands. Yeah. And so if we go back to you as a teenager, so you're interested, like you said, in, in the, um, you know, DFAT and the sort of Foreign Service. I, I imagine that's a fairly niche in, interest for teenagers. Most teenagers probably aren't in, in that sort of world. I mean, were your parents diplomats? Did you have family members who were um, involved in sort of government? What sort of planted that seed as a you know as a teenager for that in your mind?
0: Yeah actually that's a great question and it was exactly that my godfather was a diplomat and as a child um my parents were were amazing travelers and i remember visiting them in canada one year and we visited them in south africa another year and in italy and you know they it might yeah my godfather had this incredible career and i thought how wonderful and for me it was more about the the cultural side and and the travel and being exposed to to new cultures and and just that stimulus which i found really interesting and then i guess i think i worked out that that's not the only way to to get there and i was much more interested in in um in pursuing that balance of maybe, you know, working in fashion or more creative-related businesses and getting that travel experience at the same time. So it morphed. But I was I was very, very interested in politics and studied politics at high school as well. And, yeah, and I'm still an avid follower of international relations and even, um, even local politics. So, yeah, still something it, I'm passionate about.
1: Did you ever consider that as a career, either directly in politics or supporting politics in some sort of way? campaign obviously there's a big political marketing you know industry I mean was that ever something or or opportunities that have come across your desk that you sort of considered in your career?
0: Look I it's really funny how you come full circle on these things a lot of the work that we're doing today. We actually work with two peak bodies uh, who do need to influence government at all levels. And so it's it's really, I actually love that part of my work where I'm working with these peak bodies to help them develop budget submissions and election manifestos, uh, and also to, to work with both sides, um, you know, with, bi- with bipartisan policy recommendations. Uh, so yeah, it's, I, I'm still very, very involved in that. Um, who knows, maybe post-retirement I'll, you know, I'll consider something a little bit more involved in politics, you know. But um, I also think it should be we should have more young people mm-hmm. in um in politics as well. So you know maybe it would be a little bit unfair to, to try and take up a seat when I'm in my late 50s or 60s. And you know, those roles I'm really passionate about the idea that you know we need young people representing uh you know we need we need better representation in politics full stop. You know, the fact that we only have 35% female representation in federal parliament is not good enough. The fact that they are all so much older we yeah we need more women more diversity, more young
1: people. And when you were at that young stage of studying political science, did other people that you were studying with, did some of them go into politics? Because, again, youth engagement in politics is, a, is always a challenge. Or did a lot of them, like yourself, kind of diversify off and go into law or, you know, marketing or business? Or did some sort of stay and, and continue along that political sort of path?
0: Look, the majority, uh, to be quite honest, did actually go out into different paths. So, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I actually, you know, a couple of people who did go on and did significant postgraduate study, uh, masters, and one person even did their PhD before entering the diplomatic service. So um, only a couple. Yeah, the vast majority went into different fields.
1: OK. And so, again, your teenage interest was sort of. Uh, politics slash government as well as fashion and clothes and travel and you're able to combine those and sort of work overseas um was there a big sort of culture shock when you were sort of working overseas having grown up in Australia although you mentioned you traveled and and, you know were quite sort of worldly were there still culture shocks or in the work environment things you found you know hard to adapt to
0: look for sure uh I kind of Felt like I'd come from, you know, this country where things were quite egalitarian. When I worked in Italy in particular, I found that quite quite um, some some aspects quite disconcerting, um, like you know, the, the, there there was a little bit of um, not not definitely not at Nike, but with some of the organisations that we worked with, there was always a little bit of an element of bribery. There was nepotism, and it was quite blatant. And it was something that look it goes on in Australia, but it's but it's not that blatant. So that was really interesting, I think, from a business standpoint. Um, you know, moving to the Netherlands, really really interesting business culture there. Extremely pragmatic um extremely blunt and and direct and adapting to that is really is really really interesting but you know i, I think what i found is even though there are cultural nuances i was you know every, everywhere makes it work right and uh and i i i loved adapting to the business culture in Italy. I enjoyed adapting to it in the Netherlands. The US was pretty easy. It was much uh, more similar to to Australian culture. And the reality is also that I spent 16 years working for American multinationals. So um, I was really working within that culture in a very big way and then adapting to a certain degree to the to the stakeholders I was working with but um yeah I I loved it I mean especially when I was working at European headquarters I was working with retailers spread across Europe you know the heads of department stores buyers at department stores in in France and the UK and Germany and yeah learning about their cultures was fascinating yeah
1: and so, when I imagine you've seen the movie *The Devil Wears Prada*, what's your sort of uh, reaction when you watch something like that? Were some of those things in the the clothing and sort of fashion industry relatable? Or obviously, it's yeah, you know, Hollywood, it's a, a comedy. But, um, but what was your sort of take on that film and depiction?
0: <laughs> Not in a business like Nike or, or Levi's, not at all. No, like, yeah, absolutely not. They're very, very um casual, very relaxed, quite egalitarian type businesses. Yeah, no, that's that's a whole other the world of high, high fashion. Um, yeah, it was I didn't come across that personally. I know it exists because of friends that have worked in that industry, but not my personal experience.
1: And, and, and you're right, it's almost a separate industry, right? High fashion versus sort of um other sort of clothing retail. And so you mentioned, you know, Nike, a growth, you know, technology led, you know, always cutting edge sort of firm, and then going to Levi, a much older brand. From memory, I think it sort of started in the mid 1800s, sort of San Francisco gold rush, and, and sort of, you know, had been around a lot longer, whereas Nike, you know, Uh, um, Phil Knight and you know started that in the sort of 60s Um, what were some of those other sort of culture shocks going from a tech-led younger business clothing business to a a more you know multi-century sort of um, like you said declining business at the time
0: Yeah, look, there were some really interesting dynamics. Um, So Nike has always been a very market facing business, business, very consumer centric, you know, very retailer centric. Um, and, And, and you see that it's, you know, marketing and sales, those front facing functions are the ones that are that are most dominant, even internally from a from a cultural standpoint, Levi's had come from a manufacturing background, they had owned their own factories. So what I found when I and they were getting out of owning their own factory so they understood that the future was about being a more market-facing organization and to move to third-party manufacturing so they were undergoing that cultural change but there were still leftovers from from the previous culture so what I found was was a culture where the tail was wagging the dog that was my impression where it was like no you can't make this product because this factory can do this so um, your team needs to make product that fit into the capabilities of this factory, and I was like, um, "It doesn't work that way." The consumer decides, um, and and it was it was very very interesting having those types of conversations with supply chain and and other functions, who had much more. Uh, influence and power than, than you know, they would have in an organisation like Nike. So uh, some really interesting dynamics there. And I think also what I found was they had rested on their laurels for way too long. And that was why they were having so many problems. Uh, so, Um, I don't know if you, you know, you remember, I'm certainly old enough to remember, you know, back in in the 90s, men, women and children all wore 501s, you know, that was what we all wore. And then something happened called the feminization of jeans wear and all of these kind of budalicious, you know, sexy jeans started coming out and we had the Britneys and the Beyonce's and and a whole bunch of brands jumped on that and did that really, really well and Levi's didn't. So, um, you know, when I got there, I, I was still hearing, you know, I, I led the women's business for, for Europe, Middle East and Africa, and I still was hearing people saying, you just need to do more ads of 501s to women and uh, so, you know, there was very much this whole thing, you know, the, the sausage factory was mm. churning 501s. And and so, you know, I had a bit of a cultural challenge to get the business to understand, well, no, we actually need to do a whole set of new fits. And we need to communicate to the female consumer on her terms and to her directly, um, you know, within the context of, of the culture that is today while still preserving the identity of the brand so you know it was a really it was a really really interesting challenge so you know we still kept a bit of a masculine twist uh in the way that we positioned the women's um you know the women's product and the and and overall positioning uh but yeah it was it was interesting it was definitely interesting but i but we got there in the end and you know managed to when we finally did launch a completely new women's positioning we got got 25% growth in the first season. So the market was really ready for it. But yeah, it was it the difference was the internal cultural challenges. um, Whereas that was never the case at Nike. At Nike, it's okay, that's what the consumer uh, is moving towards. Let's make sure we do it in our way, of course, and within the guardrails of what is right for our brand. But it was a much more progressive consumer-centric business. Yeah. Big, they're the biggest differences, Mm. I would say.
1: And then you moved into private equity. And again, maybe they have an unfair stereotype of often, you know, they come in, leverage it up with debt, cut long-term brand spending, invest in short-term activation, pump up revenue, pump up margins, and then sort of sell it. So it's interesting that you're with a private equity company that's quite brand focused, I guess, and seeing the value and your experience in sort of brand versus, you know, short-term activation things that sort of direct, you know, correlation and push up sort of revenue. Do you find that was unique or is private equity misunderstood and a lot of the firms do get that sort of branding, build the asset, build the value, and then sort of exit like the, the uh, projects you mentioned you worked on?
0: Um, I, I was very deliberate in making sure that I had a really good, chem- had great chemistry and a really good fit with the private equity owners that um, that were running those businesses. And I was really clear even at the interview stage saying, I am a brand lid business transformation leader. I can I can do this, but it has to be brand led. And if that's not what you want, if you want somebody who's going to come in and just strip out all of the costs and commoditize the product, I'm not the person for you. And I think that's really, really important. And I do think that there are a number of different private equity groups out there. Some of them are definitely, um, you know, the, the type that you described and others are more brand centric. And I think I was really fortunate in having found those matches, both at at Sheridan uh, and Jolique. Um, Particularly, you know, Jolique was really interesting. It was one of the private equity partners, the majority uh, partner was a San Francisco based group called JH Partners. And they had invested in very brand led businesses. So if you looked at the rest of their portfolio, it was very, very brand led. And I knew Pretty quickly that um, they they would give me the the space to transform and grow the brand using you know using brand and product mm. and R and D. So yeah, so uh, look, I think I guess my advice to people who come from a very brand led background and want to go into private equity is just to make sure that there's that right cultural fit and match and making sure that that conversation happens up front. Um, otherwise, it's yeah, not going to be a great match.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's so important that the values aligning because there's many different ways to do private equity. So you've had this illustrious global, like I said, C-suite you know, with iconic sort of household name, brand, career, and then what made you want to start your own business? Obviously, you could have kept being in the sort of C-suite or, um, you know, continued um, doing finance, private equity, brand marketing, consumer-facing sort of products. Did something trigger the decision when you thought, hey, I want to run my own business? Had you run other businesses in between your various sort of career ventures?
0: Yeah, look, I I think I've always had an entrepreneurial streak, even though probably, you know, within businesses, you'd call it intrapreneurial. Uh, I was, I I launched a lot of business units uh, in my time over, you know, my time in various brands. So whenever I would see an incredible market opportunity, I'd write up the business plan and I'd present it to to the business leaders. and, And this happened to me several times, twice at Nike, where I launched a category called Outdoor Basketball. And then later on, I was the founding business director for Nike White Label, which is now called Nike Sportswear for apparel, which is that whole fashion meets sport. Uh, uh, range and, you know, it's now sort of multi-billion dollar range for Nike. But what I was seeing and what I was, particularly with that one, what I was seeing and what I was hearing talking to retailers, they were saying, you know, we you know was talking to the colette's or the fred uh, Siegel's and these incredibly um elite boutique stores that had amazing collections and they were like we need a range that is different to what you give to footlocker um and i knew that there was this opportunity to go to them and that it, but it still needed to be very authentic it needed to be grounded in in the brand and i put the business plan together and the proposal and got it across the line and was able to actually start that business unit within nike with a with a with a fresh team. Um, So, you know, having opportunities like that, I I guess I trusted my entrepreneurial gut um, and I, yeah, I guess I've always had had it in me. But look, there were other triggers as well. There were definitely aspects of corporate Australia that I found really mediocre and quite yeah, you know, I was quite disillusioned by some of the values um, I felt that there was a lot of I, I got really really interested when I was at Jalik I was also chair of the CSR council mm-hmm. and I got really really interested in ESG and in some of my subsequent experiences I found that there was very Superficial, or you know, it was it, there was more virtue signaling, um, versus you know, versus truly uh, embracing it. Uh, so I felt that there was an opportunity to help businesses become more purpose led uh, and to make it real within their organizations. And at the same time, I was seeing the rise of ESG and how, how much more important it was. So, yeah, I, I definitely saw that opportunity. I, I think the other component. Uh, that I think is really important to talk about is is the chemistry with my business partners. So I was really really fortunate to have met Phil and Rob just as I was finishing. I'd finished up at Freedom. I'd been the chief operating officer there, and and I took on a temporary assignment, and I, I ended up working with with Phil and Rob and we found that we had a real values match and we actually took some time we we, we before we formed the growth activists we decided to work together for about 6 months informally on various projects and really make sure there was a values match and make sure that you know the the chemistry was right and and only at the end of that we were like okay this is going to work and we have a shared vision around what we can create and and we went for it so i think it was a combination of meeting the right business partners at the right time but also feeling that it was time to to trust my instinct and and create a consultancy that is based on more purpose-led business strategy.
1: And what was the first twelve months like? You're launching these new innovative divisions, but with the backing of you know multi-billion-dollar brands and companies and processes. So, so what was it like? So, you had the process of you know understanding the market, being customer-facing, watching trends. But but how did it compare to sort of the first twelve months when you actually you find the business partners, you click well because we hey, we're actually going to start a business, and you know, you've got your personal skills and network, but you don't have you know the brand necessarily, the parent brand behind you, or the support or funding. How did that sort of compare?
0: It is really bloody hard, you know. And I'm I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's you know I really do believe that um, a lot of business success is just survival, right? If you can get through the first twelve months, and you can get through the first twenty four months, and you can bank all of those learnings and make sure that you you know you fail fast and fall forward and that every time you know you're really you're really you're not repeating the same mistakes that's almost half the work of of you know becoming a successful business and i know that sounds you know you hear about all of these amazing overnight successes and for us the reality wasn't that it was we we made tons of mistakes um so it is it was definitely it was definitely really hard uh, but we persevered and we had some really great traction with we landed some amazing clients we were really good at celebrating the wins to keep ourselves motivated even when financial results weren't fantastic so uh we we I think you know perseverance and and having a bit of grit and recognizing that you know things weren't perfect but we were learning that was a really really important part of not just the first 12 months but the the first two years, and I think the other the other thing that was really important to us was we learned when we 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 reached out for help at the right time. Uh, we were quite, I think, realistic around where we were lacking in capabilities. So, for example, we brought on a business development coach because. I'd never done B2B sales before for a a professional services business. Um, I could sell lots of other stuff (laughs) in consumer goods and retail, um, you know, wholesale, retail, every channel. But, you know, I'd never sold professional services before. And reaching out for that sort of help and, and external help where we were lacking in capability was really, really critical. So I think that that was a really big part of getting us through the first couple of years as well.
1: And so what were some of those challenges? Was it, like I said, obviously learning how to sell B2B services? Was it that you saw a gap in the market, but, you know, the clients were a bit more sort of slow to see it, or people say that they like what you do, but then when you, you actually try and, you know, get them to pay for it, they don't want to necessarily pay for it, they just want to talk about it. What What were some of those challenges that made it a bit maybe slower or harder, or like you said, sort of some um, things that were different to what you expected or harder than expected in the early early year, especially?
0: Yeah, look, I do think that we were a bit early in terms of product market fit. So we we wanted to sell um, I, I guess, purpose-led business strategy services. Uh, but we weren't identifying what the client problem was yet or maybe the client didn't realise it was a problem yet. So we needed to adapt and and I think particularly with business development coaching, it was all about identifying what is the client problem and making sure that we were really matching our services to to true, tangible, real, immediate client problems and that obviously made us much more successful. Um, But I think what we found was also during covid that the market caught up to our vision as well so what what we found and this is why we've had such incredible growth over over the last two years so in may we will have been uh, next month we'll be 4 years old uh, and so the last two years have been really the the key growth phase for us and we you know, my interpretation is during COVID, it was a period of intense reflection for a lot of business leaders. And they started thinking about things like, well, how do we get this balance back? You know, how do we become a more human centric business? Um, also things like, what's my legacy going to be? Am my kids going to stand up at my eulogy and talk about how I help businesses make tons of money? Or am I going to, are they going to talk about how I helped, create some good for people and planet whilst doing well, you know, in in the business world. So I think we, you know, yeah, you know, COP26 uh, in October last year and the momentum building up to it, there were so many different factors, um, you know, looking after people whilst they're working from home and just being more, uh, yeah, again, human-centric. I think all of these things converged from from a macro trend standpoint and a lot more of what we'd been talking about in the past became more relevant. So um, that really enabled us to really go back to what we love to do, which is helping businesses develop incredible business strategies, but put purpose and put um, creating, doing good uh, at the center of of that business strategy uh, and serving a bigger group of stakeholders. So yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I think that's, kind of a key component for why we've been, you know, we've had this accelerated growth mm. in the last couple of years. It's one, yeah. one of us. Yeah,
1: yeah no, I think it sounds like COVID was a real sort of pattern interrupt in how people are doing business, how they're thinking about business, how they're thinking about things. So you really sort of answered my next question, which is how you sort of drove that growth and become one of the fastest growing new businesses in australia so you mentioned before like when you return to corporate australia a lot of people talk about purpose and mission maybe and values but they don't really live it and i imagine again with a business as well somehow maybe they, they're willing to chat to you but they don't actually want to invest in strategy and advice and guidance um So for you, is it a matter of sort of filtering out, just like you did with the private equity, you know, who's serious and who's committed versus who's not, and they just want to, you know, PR versus, you know, actual implementation? Or how do you go about sort of, you know, ensuring the clients you're working with and the strategy, you know, will only really work if, you know, the consumers or the end users see it as authentic and real versus, you know, publicity? Um, So how do you sort of manage that um, dichotomy?
0: Yeah, look, I, I, it's something that we're very deliberate about um, because the client runs the risk, and we reputation, you know, reputationally also run the risk um, of you know having done done work and then being caught out as greenwashing or virtue signalling, and uh, and that would really undermine all of our principles as well. So we are we're extremely deliberate in having those conversations with clients, particularly if they want to undergo ESG transformation. Um, Because we do have the three key services. We do do do, um, business strategy and strategic planning and growth planning. Then we have our responsible business uh, services under which is ESG transformation, helping businesses become B Corps. And then we have our engagement component, which is very much about communicating and embedding and, and bringing all of that to life through brand and communications, both internal and external. So they're kind of our three key service areas. But particularly if businesses are wanting to, to really go into that responsible business area and start to integrate that into their overall strategy and really, really embrace, you know, sustainability transformation, the conversation has to happen from the top. So it has to happen at the C-suite. Has to happen at the board level if they're large businesses with um with you know a fiduciary board, we, there has to be buy-in from the top, because if there isn't, um it's not going to work. And and you know, we yeah, we we know that. I think what is really important, it's a little bit like I, I see sustainability transformation a little bit like digital transformation was in in the last decade. And I think it's going to be one of the one of the themes of the coming decade for all businesses that, you know, it, it, some people thought, oh, digital transformation needs to sit off with the with the CTO or CIO. But the reality is it only works when it's fully integrated across every part of the business. And you've got, you know, cross-functional teams really embracing and adopting and working with the, the CIO um, on, on bringing it to life. It needs to be owned across the business. And ESG is no different Um, and, and so there are still businesses that think yeah that sits off to the side we even very large ASX listed businesses saying great you know we've got a chief sustainability officer but it's very siloed and it sits off to the side and it has the purpose of making sure that documentation for institutional shareholders looks fantastic. You know, we're ticking all of those boxes, but it's not truly integrated in the business. It's not brought to life in the business. And that's where it doesn't work and where those businesses do eventually get caught out uh, with inconsistencies because it hasn't been owned across every part of the business. So for us, a really big part of the conversation is, are you willing to make sure this is truly a cross-functional, uh, you know, strategic um, commitment that the business is going to make, uh, and, and making sure that you're really creating capability and ownership across every function, or at least every function that is, you know, highly involved with, with bringing it to life. It's, it's a really big part of the upfront conversation uh, because it's a big part of the way that we design the actual implementation process as well.
1: And so I imagine that very large corporates and the boards are very familiar with ESG but do you um, talk to some people and they've never heard of ESG and is part of your role sort of educating people or explaining how that fits into you know purpose driven, mission driven, which they might be more familiar with at the general level versus specific. Or how do you, in a simple way, explain to someone who's never heard of ESG of what that sort of means and what it what the impact is?
0: Yeah, look, uh, it, definitely, there's still pockets. You know, very large corporates. Yeah, absolutely they they absolutely get it and they've been doing reporting for primarily for shareholders and financial community for a very long time. Uh, but I do still find, even with some of the larger organisations, they're not seeing the opportunities more broadly, to to embed ESG principles at an R and D level, and you know, to be embedding it at a at a comms level, and to you know, to really be taking that out and living those principles in a much bigger way. So there is definitely a bit of education to be done there. But I think with with smaller businesses, yes, there's you know, I, I basically, I mean, the the way that I would talk to them about it is, we are moving, our society is moving from being very, um, Shareholder primacy driven to a more stakeholder centric you know, model. And that means businesses need to be thinking about a bigger group of stakeholders to future proof themselves. They need to be thinking about their community. They need to be thinking about their employees and their people. They need to be thinking about the environment. Um, they need to be thinking uh, about their suppliers and how they work with those suppliers uh, and how they manage all of those relationships. And if you are Are developing a business strategy that yes delivers growth, but also delivers value for all of those stakeholders, including shareholders, of course. um, You know, then if you're creating value, you get this amazing exponential tailwind at your back. If you're not creating value for them and you have abrasive relationships with any of those parties, you run significant risk um, of activism, you run, you know, a significant risk of not having support. And we've seen it with all sorts of businesses where they have employee activists that really damage the reputation of the business or environmental activists or even shareholder activists that are saying you're not doing enough so um it you know that's that's often the story that we're telling them you know you can future-proof your business and at the same time be doing a lot more good for people and planet um so that's yeah they're the headlines of I guess the narrative
1: Yeah. And so zooming out a little bit from the business, you've worked across continents, across a number of countries, uh, global brands. You've been on the sort of cutting edge of trends, like you said, launching sort of businesses inside businesses and now your own business. So so what trends do you see in entrepreneurship in Australia specifically? You know, what are a lot of the Australian entrepreneurs you you see and follow sort of doing well? And then, you know, compared to sort of the global community, where do you see them, you know, perhaps a step behind and, and something they could work towards?
0: Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting question. I think startups, I'm seeing so many more startups that are that are started by Gen Z's and young millennials being born not only digital, but they're born conscious. So they're starting these businesses with incredible um, purpose led Um, principles, you know, really, really, really deeply embedded into the fabric of the business and how they operate and how they serve their communities and their customers. And I find that incredibly exciting. And look, I I don't think that's unique to Australia. Um, I think that's also happening in other parts of the world. But one thing that needs to be said is that it is... um, You know, I saw an incredible stat uh, a couple of weeks ago around how Australia is punching above its weight in terms of number of B Corps businesses that are certifying as B Corps. So even though Australia is... Tiny uh, and you know, population-wise, uh, we have 10% of the world's B Corps uh already. So I, I think we're seeing really significant uptake in, in businesses that are saying, not only do I do I want to have incredible ESG built into my business, I actually want to certify. I want to have a third party come in and actually audit me and 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 certify and show that I actually am best practice and amongst the best in the world. So I think that's a really amazing commitment that Australian businesses are making. And I think what what I'm also seeing is that there is a shift from it being, you know, very SME driven to much more large corporate businesses wanting those certifications and, and to be measuring themselves against better, you know, bigger frameworks. So I think that's really significant. I think at the Bigger end of town at the ASX level, we're possibly behind. Um, you know, you see businesses like Apple where a Tim Cook is happy to stand up and tell shareholders, we're not going to deliver dividends for a while because we're investing in sustainable innovation. Uh, and you don't hear that, uh, you know, as much in Australia. Um, there is still this kind of, you know, being on the treadmill and, and delivering dividends on, on a regular basis versus being able to, to really stand up and say, you know, there are there are some bigger objectives that we need to achieve. And by doing that, overall business value will increase. I mean, that's why Tim Cook is doing it. Um, He's, you know, he's trying to serve, I guess, many, many stakeholders at once. Um, And so I do think we're on the back foot there. I think our our listed companies generally are much more conservative and still in that sort of shareholder primacy um, mind state and haven't quite made the shift yet.
1: Yeah, and so going back at a sort of personal level, what advice would you give your sort of 18 to 21-year-old self? You like travel, you've got a, a, um, relatives in the um, you know, diplomatic service, you like business, you like fashion, you're a bit sort of, you know, obviously um, curious and, and youthful and ambitious. And, you know, but like a lot of people that age, kind of not sure which direction, kind of got too many um, interests and excitements. So, so what advice would you give yourself or someone who's you know, eighteen to twenty one right now and trying to figure out what sort of path of many to sort of follow or where to go, where to start?
0: Yeah, uh, look, I think um I think the the key advice I would give is is be curious and remain curious and try to learn as much as as you can um and and don't put too much pressure on yourself around what you're you're going to do, because you may very well find, like I did, I was down a pathway and found that actually there was something else that I found more interesting. Uh, so follow that. And I think there's a lot of pressure on young people to determine that pathway very, very early. And I think we live in this incredible era where you can actually have several careers in a lifetime and, and continue reinventing yourself. and um, And I think, That's a really amazing thing, you know. So I guess the first piece of of, of advice is keep exploring. And if you found you've gone down the wrong pathway, don't get hung up about it pursue the next pathway, go for it. You know, uh, one of the most uh, inspiring conversations I had was a number of years ago, I was in Portland and um, with I was with a friend and, and we started chatting to this gentleman who was in his, I think he was in his late 50s and he, has, he was just completing his medical degree and was about to start working as a GP. And he'd been a carpenter all his life and had given up his medical studies. And he went back to it and I was like, you know, that is... A- amazing. That is incredible. Um, You know, I even look at my husband, who's changed careers several times from accountant to photographer. And now he's considering, you know, what the what the next thing is going to be, he went back and retrained. And I think that's incredible. You know, it's amazing, you don't have to stay in in one pathway. So that's one piece of advice. I think the other thing is, you know, humility is really important. uh, And not just it's just that recognition that you don't know it all and it's important to reach out for the help and, and get the help when you need it in, in areas. And that's something that served me really well all the way through my career. And probably the other, I mean, I think I've already said it, is just adopting that growth mindset mm-hmm. and believing that, you know, you're not pigeonholed in any specific area, that you can keep learning and you can become really amazing at different skills and different capabilities. Um, As long as you keep that open growth mindset, um, you can, yeah, you can keep evolving. And and that's the really exciting thing, you know, that that we keep growing and and evolving as humans and as professionals. Um, I think the saddest thing would be to be at a standstill and and be apart and and not have that sort of continuous stimulus and growth. So yeah yeah and to enjoy all the relationships that you form along along the way as well because it is all about humans in the end.
1: Yeah, absolutely. do you have any final uh, thoughts or parting words for the audience?
0: Oh, goodness. Uh, I mean, your audience is really all, you know, they're interested in in that, in that growth and what it takes. Look, I think my parting words would be um, tenacity is really, really important. You know, stick to it um, and bank all of those learnings. You know, make sure that you really are falling forward. Yeah, definitely uh, use those learnings as the stepping stones for continuous growth.
1: Excellent. Thanks so much, Rosanna a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.